Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. This week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week. My conversation with Abby is coming up right after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you for joining us again. Sure thing. I know that you had the chance to listen to my interview with Michael Cicchini, criminal defense attorney in Kenosha, Wisconsin. What were your thoughts on my conversation in the general sense? I thought Michael Cicchini was very interesting and, you know, offered some insights into local practice. And just like all politics is local, all law practice is local, maybe especially criminal law practice. And Cicchini, as a repeat player before various judges, in particular Judge Schrader, I think illustrated some things that are important about the judge's personality and reputation and some of the kind of local cultural mores. One thing to remember, though, is that Cicchini is apparently still a practicing lawyer, so he can't say too much lest he harm his clients. If he's going to appear before Judge Schrader again, he's not going to be out there criticizing the judge. That would be bad lawyering. It wouldn't be terribly client-centered. So I, I have to imagine that he pulled his punches somewhat. I also didn't think he was terribly responsive to the, some of the questions you were asking, Carrie. You were asking whether there were some things kind of historically that set the judge off, that got on the judge's nerves. I think you were asking about the judge, you know, on a more personal idiosyncratic level. And Mr. Cicchini responded by saying that he's not good on the Fourth Amendment. And some people think he's a harsh sentencer, even though Mr. Cicchini disagreed about the latter. That wasn't really your question. And it's sort of strange, frankly, that this judge, who seemed at least in his verbiage to care so much about the law, what the law allows and what the law doesn't. That's strange that he would be regarded as somehow bad on an entire area of law, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, which has largely to do with search and seizure law. But I understand judges get reputation. Some are better at pretrial motions than other judges. Some judges are better at kind of core constitutional motions, which is what a Fourth Amendment motion to suppress would be. He seemed prickly to me, the judge. And I think Mr. Cicchini was loath to say that. Yeah. Another aspect of that is, and what I read into his response, particularly when it came to the Fourth Amendment issue, was that the judge is pretty pro-cop. 
And one of the things that marked Kyle Rittenhouse's presence in Kenosha that night was that he had the tacit, if not active, support of the police. Uh-huh. Now, I'm not saying that they supported him shooting people, but when it came to them handing out bottles of water to people who were armed like Rittenhouse who were protecting businesses, or when it came to the police officer who had been called to the scene where Kyle Rittenhouse was accused of assaulting a woman a few months earlier, she was being called to testify to support the fact that Rittenhouse was acting responsibly and politely over the course of that evening of August 25th. So one of the things that I read into it was that Schrader has a reputation of being very much supportive of law enforcement in his legal interpretations of things. Okay, well, that makes sense. Although he's an interesting judge because in the pretrial motions, he seemed very, very careful and appropriately defense-oriented. In my view, judges ought to be more defense-oriented. That means they're bill of rights-oriented. That means they're really mindful of the state bearing the burden of proof and the burden of proof being the highest standard known to evidence and the presumption of innocence. And they're going to be a little more generous when it comes to evidence on the defense side and hold the prosecution to a high burden. And it seemed like that was animating the judge's pretrial motions. That's interesting about his pro-law enforcement bent. Yes, that would explain why he'd have a reputation of being tough on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Judges who tend to not grant motions to suppress are leaning more on the side of law enforcement discretion when it comes to reasonable, articulable suspicion, which is the grounds for stop and frisk, and or those sorts of judges would give law enforcement a fair amount of leeway on probable cause to arrest or do a full search. But he seemed pretty defense-oriented in the rest of his instructions. Now, this case, of course, didn't include any Fourth Amendment litigation, so that was kind of irrelevant here. And, you know, I think it's a fair point that Kyle Rittenhouse was kind of a police officer wannabe on this night, that he and his pals decided they're going to go and they're going to kind of support law enforcement and support people who owned shops and whatnot on the kind of law and order side. And so I think it's a fair question about whether that was kind of a subplot in this trial and whether that served to make the judge more sympathetic to this particular defendant. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot as we cover this trial is what my own personal prejudices are and what the role of the podcast is for our listeners. And one of the things I'm sort of gravitating towards is using the trial as an opportunity to explain to the listeners how this verdict came to be, that it was perhaps partly a process of a judge influencing things. But as I look more deeply at this and as I hear the arguments in the trial in great depth, I am coming to see that a lot of it was about the lawyering in the case and the way that the narratives were presented. And so that's a pretty natural segue into the opening statements. And beginning with the Thomas Binger opening for the prosecution, what was your general sense of Binger's opening? So I thought it was a very solid opening. I have to say, I thought it was nicely done until I heard the defense opening. In other words, He 
He offered up a narrative that was largely chronological. He introduced the cast of characters in a way that made each one fairly distinctive. But it was a relatively cool presentation. I think Mr. Binger is is smart. I think he's a smart lawyer. One of the things that's so interesting that I've learned about the two lawyers, Mark Richards and Thomas Binger, is that they both were former prosecutors. It looks like Binger had a little time in private practice as well as a defense lawyer. So both lawyers have prosecuted and defended. They've both been around, you know, the courtroom for some time. And I thought they both gave very fluid narrative presentations. You know, I have to say my my theory is that Binger was overly confident. And sometimes prosecutors are. They get used to winning. You know, after all, prosecutors have a kind of built-in natural narrative to tell. Prosecutors can almost take their opening statement directly from police reports. Something happened. There, were, there was a cast of characters. And all of the evidence leads inextricably to the conclusion that the defendant is guilty. That's your kind of standard prosecution opening. And on an average day, that was a perfectly fine opening by Tom Binger. It started to look bad when the defense offered up some audiovisual aids, you know, some illustrations. Suddenly their opening was more interesting, frankly. You know, pictures tend to make things more interesting. And also... It was actually kind of more instructive. I have the point of view that an opening statement for a defense lawyer is really an opportunity to shove your foot in the door and say, wait, 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 not so fast. Keep an open mind. Don't jump to any conclusions. You kind of want to level the playing field. You want to offer a competing narrative, the aim of which is to keep the minds of the jury, of the jurors open. I also think less is more from the defense point of view in an opening. And one of the things I, I teach the students and postgraduate fellows I work with is, you know, don't overcommit and don't include too many names of the cast of characters because you're in the beginning of the trial. It can become, if you offer too many names, like a Russian novel, you know how in the beginning of a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky novel, there's a glossary of names. And as you're reading these long novels, oftentimes you're going back to remind yourself, wait, now who is who? And you don't want to do that. You can't do that in a trial. So so I urge the people I teach to use other sorts of nomenclature, complaining witness. A complaining witness, that's like a brilliant phrase because complain, complain, complain. You, you know, it's, it's just skeptical enough. And police officers, eyewitnesses, use their categories, don't use their names because their names are not going to mean anything until the jury actually meets them on the witness stand. This trial is the exception that proves the rule. There were so many people, so many names in the cast of characters, and Binger in his opening introduces them and describes who they are. But the jury, of course, can't picture any of them because they're just names. The narrative is verbal. Where Mark Richards have it, had it way over Thomas Binger is that every time he talked about another person in the trial, he showed their picture. And when it came to some of the witnesses who were going to be critical for the prosecution and or photographs of the decedents, they were not very flattering. And so the choices that were made, I thought, were kind of effective and in sync with the defense theory. Well, let's zero in on Binger's choice not to use audiovisual material in his opening or his ignorance of the opportunity being there. What did you make of that? 
Yeah. Well, I thought that was strange. One of the first things I teach students and postgraduate fellows is local practice is just local practice. It's not written in stone. It's not the law. And yes, you should be familiar with how things are done locally because every place is a little bit different, but push back. And there is nothing that prohibited the use of videotape in the opening statement whatsoever. I don't know why, you know, Binger was so indignant about how it just isn't done. And his argument against it was terribly weak. Uh, The word he kept using was, this is unusual. Well, that's not a reason for a judge to not allow defense counsel to use videotape that's absolutely coming in at trial. And it seemed to me that stuff was absolutely coming in at trial or still photos of some of the cast of characters. It's more and more what lawyers do at trial. The judge seemed to suggest that this is done more in a civil case than in criminal trials. I disagree. If you have some pictures and you have videotape, especially in a time of police body-worn camera where there's more than enough videotape to go around, and in a number of cities, certainly where I practice in Washington, D.C., you know, the entire city is under some sort of video surveillance. You can always get videotape. You'd be foolish not to use it if it enhances your case. Now, you know, I say that, and in some ways, though, I'm still kind of an old-fashioned criminal defense lawyer. I think words can be just as effective and sometimes more effective than pictures from the defense side, partly because we don't always have great pictures that shore up our side. The prosecution inevitably has kind of the better photo display. But here, I think Binger just didn't have much imagination. He was not anticipating what the defense would do. And the defense did what any good defense lawyer should do at the beginning of the case. The defense lawyer established himself as the credible, authoritative person in the courtroom. He introduced the jury to everything and everybody and didn't just do it in words, but did it in pictures. And I don't think in most cases, the opening statement is a terribly significant event in a trial. I think, as I said, from the defense side, you're just trying to level the playing field. But in this case, I have to tell you, I was kind of gobsmacked. I actually felt that the defense won the case in opening statement. Wow. And that from that moment on, the prosecution was playing defense. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In the next part of our conversation, Abby and I move on to discuss Prosecutor Thomas Binger's anticipation of the way that the defense team would seek to characterize both their client, Kyle Rittenhouse, and the way that they would describe the individual shot by Rittenhouse. I want to drill down a bit more on Binger's opening before we move on to Richard's opening. Sure. The way that he characterized Kyle Rittenhouse, he characterized him as an outsider coming into the community. He characterized him as the only person on a night of chaos to actually kill someone. And he 
didn't really seem to anticipate the demonization of the people who were shot by Rittenhouse, by the defense. How did you interpret that before you heard the defense opening? And I think Binger did a nice job. It was a solid opening. I, you know, that's, I maintain that, you know, was he outclassed? Yes. I thought Binger was right to emphasize that Kyle Rittenhouse got a gun by using a middleman, a friend of his, to go buy him a gun at a hardware store and then keep it for him because he knew as a 17-year-old he was not allowed to purchase or carry a gun. I thought that was an important part of the prosecution narrative. The fact that they didn't have to go out there on the street, that they were watching TV and they suddenly felt motivated. I thought that was a fine part of the narrative because the little subplot was that he was painting Kyle Rittenhouse as a vigilante, as somebody who was sticking his nose where it didn't belong and who was going into an already difficult situation and making it worse by bringing a semi-automatic firearm into the situation and that he went there looking for trouble. I think probably Binger could have been more explicit about that piece. That was sort of clearly a theme in his opening that Rittenhouse was looking for trouble, that he was instigating trouble. But he should have anticipated and either mocked, made fun of, made light of the do-gooder things that Kyle Rittenhouse was doing, putting out fires and dumpsters. He should have mocked it because the suggestion that he was some kind of paramedic which was also how he was holding himself out, was just false. And he probably could have used those things to make a stronger case that, you know, this was a guy really sticking his nose in where it didn't belong. And he wasn't being a good Samaritan. He was being much worse than a Budinsky. He he was a troublemaker. Now, Binger should have anticipated because it's part of the record and it's undisputed that Rittenhouse's father lived in Kenosha, that Rittenhouse worked some kind of a job in Kenosha. Frankly, I thought the defense could have made more hay out of the fact that he was a lifeguard. That's sort of brilliant. That's consistent with the, with the do-gooder theory of defense that Richards was offering. But prosecution should have anticipated and diffused some of that stuff that they knew the defense was going to suggest, that he wasn't an outsider at all, that he was from a nearby town, that he was moved to get involved from you know good instincts. I think he could have told a more nefarious narrative about Rittenhouse's motivations. Interesting. Just a few more things about Binger's opening. I'm going to throw out three areas that I thought he could have spent more time focused on, and I want to get your response to that. Okay. I thought he could have spent more time focused on the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse chose to cross that police line after the police had pushed the crowd back past 60th Street. Rittenhouse chose to cross that line and to mingle among the people who were essentially part of the protests, carrying his weapon. Uh-huh. Number one. Number mm-hmm. two, the fact that when he tried to recross that line and go back to the car source and was denied, he did not try to go one block over. He did not try to go to a different part of the line. He instead went back and continued to mingle among the protesters. The third area that I don't think he focused enough on was that the killing shot was the shot to the back. And Kyle Rittenhouse's control of that weapon 
Yes, it is a semi-automatic weapon, but it is semi-automatic. In other words, he has conscious control of each shot that's fired. And the fact that the gunshot that killed Joseph Rosenbaum was a shot to the back was something that really should have been the focus of his case because everything else comes off of that. And so what do you think of those three areas as areas that Binger should have built the opening statement around? Well, the first two kind of blur together for me. And so what that suggests is that Binger didn't really spend much time on that at all. My recollection is that he spent more time talking about how his buddies said, listen, if we get separated, we need to meet up such and such a place. And that seems to me to be far less relevant for the prosecution than crossing a police line and staying among people who were adversaries while you're carrying a semi-automatic weapon. I think he could have made more hay of that, of the fact that he remained. He seemed to want to be in the mix. He had to have understood that his presence was provocative, that people in this country don't walk around with semi-automatic rifles slung over their shoulders. Not 17-year-olds, not 77-year-olds. It just is not a thing. And I think he, he could have spent more time on that but I could not agree with you more. That shot in the back, that was a missed opportunity. He should have begun his narrative with a shot in the back. It's just classic, not self-defense. You shoot somebody in the back, especially somebody who's unarmed in the back or who's armed with a clear plastic bag, you know, with a drawstring from a hospital. You shoot that guy in the back and he shot him multiple times. Apparently the first couple of shots were two extremities and the shot that killed him was that there was a shot in the chest and the shot in the back. Yes. No, I, w- I mean, I, I would think that his opening line of his opening statement should have been Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old who had no right to carry a gun, who did not live in Kenosha, came to Kenosha armed and with an agenda, and he shot a guy dead in the back. And I would think that would play. I would think that would have some play in Kenosha. You just don't shoot a guy in the back. It's just not self-defense. That's a person retreating. That's a person who poses no threat of danger. So yeah, that was a huge missed opportunity. And I think in keeping with the prosecution's theme that Kyle Rittenhouse you know, came into downtown Kenosha looking for trouble, that's when you should use the crossing police lines and heading into the fray as opposed to away from it. Moving on to Mark Richards' opening and the part of it that you've heard or the part of it that we've played in the podcast. You've already articulated how masterful you think it was, especially as compared to Binger's. What were some of the other things that marked that opening that you found particularly effective? He tells a good story in an incredibly folksy fashion. I'm from outside of Chicago originally, and so I'm familiar with that particular Midwestern twang. And man, did Mark Richards have it. I mean, he sometimes he's a well-educated guy. He sounded a little bit like my grandfather who didn't always have the best grammar, but there's a kind of folksy Midwestern patois that I thought Mark Richards used really well. When I say he told a good story, the devil's in the details. And so some of his storytelling included the kind of details that were sort of insider details, his knowledge of a school that had changed names a couple of times, his knowledge of the street and, you know, where various things were located on the street. He was a very engaging 
storyteller, an understated one. He wasn't, it wasn't showy. Really folksy is the only word I think that really fits his style. You know, he told the story from the point of view of his 17-year-old client, and he kept emphasizing that when he talked about the legal standard. He emphasized that self-defense is, you know, kind of both objective and subjective. The legal standard is objective and subjective, and that the jury was going to have to consider whether this 17-year-old, that's the subjective part, acted reasonably, that's the objective part, under all the facts and circumstances. I mean, he was really telling it from Rittenhouse's point of view, and it was evocative. You could, you could feel it. You could feel the chaos in the air. You could feel the kind of fear that a 17-year-old might have felt. And he managed to kind of skirt the reality that Kyle Rittenhouse put himself there, right? He didn't have to be all scared. He didn't have to feel threatened. But somehow in the telling by the defense lawyer, you really got the sense consistent with the defense theory that this was a guy who was, you know, came into downtown Kenosha with the best of intentions. He wanted to help. He's a lifeguard. He was a helper. You know, he didn't want to see businesses get all wrecked. He thought things were out of control. And so that was the spirit in which he kind of came to town and, you know, he told it well. He also really, one of the most masterful parts was, you know, this cast was long, the various people who were going to testify. And I usually don't like to include the names of all the players. It's too confusing before you, you've met them to have their names. But he did a masterful job of pointing out who was who and what their role was. I thought that Richards did a particularly effective job of neutralizing the second shooting, the second killing. Yeah, Anthony Huber. Anthony Huber by sort of rendering Mr. Huber not a person at all. He became a skateboard, but not a skateboard in the way that most of us think of skateboards as this kind of cool piece of sporting goods equipment that young people use and that now is an Olympic sport and that's, you know, kind of shiny piece of fiberglass. That's No, it wasn't that... Suddenly, and I have to give Mr. Richards credit, suddenly it's this heavy piece of wood with steel that's weapon. That's, you know, a weapon that could do fatal injury to a person. He didn't really talk about Huber at all. He just talked about that skateboard and how it was used. That's interesting because it dovetails with something else that I wanted to talk to you about. And it's your statement about these kind of Russian novel-like list of names that can drag down an opening statement. One of the uh -huh. things that Richards did was he gave dehumanizing names to a bunch yes. of the characters in this. There was Jump Kick Man and there was Yellow Pants Man. And there was, you know, essentially Huber became Skateboard Man. Right. He did. That was brilliant. I, you know, I have to say, and that's a classic technique in opening statements is to kind of take various witnesses out by choosing language, by naming them things to make them less human. And he did that well and with humor. There's one other area that I want to ask you about, and that's the sartorial and grooming choices that each of the two lawyers made for their opening statement presentations. Binger looked like he shopped on Miracle Mile in Chicago for his <laughs> outfit, and Richards looked like he shopped at the local Brooks Brothers outlet. What did you make of that? And do you think it was conscious on either lawyer's part, or do you think that that's just how they show up in court each day? It's a really interesting question. So I was very interested to see the 
photos that you sent me. It goes beyond the clothes. Their hairstyles were noteworthy. Mr. Binger had a kind of, you know, hipster quaff. It looked like there was product in his hair and it kind of went up in the front. It was short on the sides and he had sort of hipster glasses. The defense lawyer Yes, I think that's fair. It looked like he shopped at the Brooks Brothers outlet. He was a little bit out of central casting for a certain kind of local lawyer. The suit fit, but sort of was sort of ill-fitting. He was a little heavy set, but is very conservative. The white shirt, red tie, dark suit. That's typically what a prosecutor wears. The roles were a little reversed. Binger had a his hipness was much more defense counsel like he was wearing kind of a dark colored shirt did the shirt have a pattern as i recall and a tie sort of brought the suit in with the shirt yeah he was a little bit more high fashion and and generally defense lawyers you know are the more unusual eye catching dressers I don't know. You know, I would have to know more about Kenosha. Did he stick out like a sore thumb? I mean, I I can say without any reservation that Mr. Richard did not stick out. He stuck in. He was part of the fabric of the place. That that was part of his presentation. That was how he looked to me. He also had like he had a bit of a buzz cut. He looked like a working class lawyer, if there is such a thing. And Binger looked a little more aristocratic. So maybe there was a class thing happening also in the trial. I mean, Binger is kind of fancy educated, even though he's a Midwestern boy himself. He's from South Dakota. He went to University of Michigan and University of Michigan Law School is notwithstanding the fact that Clarence Darrow went there. It's known as a kind of Ivy League public law school. And apparently defense counsel was University of Wisconsin undergraduate and law school, which is also a fine law school. I mean, you know, as I said before, I think the case was well lawyered on both sides. These were skilled lawyers. They knew what they were doing. But one came across as of the town and place, and the other was a bit of an outsider. I don't know how to put it, but the defense counsel just felt more local. They felt more authentic. You know, and that's a funny sort of thing when you think about narratives and the power of a narrative in advocacy. The teller is often just as important as the story, and the two things should kind of be in sync. And I think the defense had that down. And it's sort of a shame because the there was a, you know, the prosecutor had opportunities. There was a story to tell about somebody coming into our town. We didn't ask him here. We didn't ask him to arm himself with a semi-automatic rifle. That's not what we, we didn't issue out a call. Please come to our town to help us. You know, we have people who are police officers and firefighters who are trained to do that. We didn't invite vigilantes to come to town. They didn't help. They didn't make matters better. You know, this guy killed two people and almost killed a third. He didn't tell that somehow from a perspective that would resonate with the locals. Well, Abby Smith, thank you so much again for your time. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue in future weeks of our coverage of the trial. Me too. This is really fun. Thanks for including me. That concludes this weekly recap episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Please join us next week as we continue our examination of defense attorney Mark Richards' opening statement to the jury. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.